Let's pray. Father, we bow before you and pray that you would take your word to use your word. Your word is a sword. It pierces, it reveals, it's an anvil, it's, uh, it's balm. Use your word today as only you can. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have a dilemma this morning. Um, There was a significant development this past week. Now, first of all, I want to say if you're a parent in here and you have kids, I'm not going to get too graphic, so uh, you will be able to hear what I'm going to say. But uh, there was a significant development this past week with with, with Planned Parenthood. How many of you saw that? Yeah, just about everybody. It, It was one of the most depraved, inhumane things I've ever seen in my entire life. It's not anything that I haven't heard about before, but to... But to observe that and witness it was, uh, was unfathomable. Unlike the, the, the Supreme Court ruling where in God's providence we had the topic of the gospel and homosexuality already on the schedule, that's not our case today. We actually have the gospel and life scheduled for next Sunday. And you do not want to miss next Sunday. Next Sunday night uh, in, our, uh, in our recharge the gospel and culture, there will be two testimonies. You're going to hear the word. We're going to talk about and be reminded what God says about the value of human life. And the two testimonies you're going to hear is, is one individual that has been touched by abortion and has been redeemed through that process, and the other is about adoption, which is one of the things that Christians can do in the, in the face of, uh, of that. So... So that's what's on the on slate for, for next week. And uh, while it's not possible or practical, because you can see we have the Lord's table set this morning, um, to change that up. This is one of, the, one of the, the few times that we do this on Sunday morning. Typically it's on Sunday night. And I won't ask for a raise of hands right now, but there's a number of you that's, that have to work or for other reasons can't be here on Sunday nights. You live far away and... And uh, you haven't been able to take the Lord's Supper for a long time. So this is, this is a beautiful thing that we're going to be participating in this morning. So all of those circumstances, I, I don't want to just come up here and be tone deaf and with the reality of what you're thinking and what I'm thinking and how I'm reacting on my heart, but at the same time tell you how the Lord has unfolded everything in, uh, in Providence. I also want to say to you that... Um, it's a, it's a topic that I couldn't leave unmentioned. It's too, too heinous, too monstrous. So before I even ask you to open your Bibles this morning, I want you to consider to do two things for me. Number one, I want you to consider this week uh, about praying and fasting, specifically uh, for, for God to remove abortion from our country. Now, when I say that to you, you've been talking about this, we've been talking about this for a long time. I don't have to tell Timberlake Baptist Church that it's murder. I don't have to tell you that it's a horrible thing. I don't have to tell you. You've been fighting that battle. Uh, we as a church used to stand on Timberlake Road with signs whenever that was something that was, uh, was effective. I don't have to tell you that. But what I want to ask you to do is to, is to seek God about it afresh. Okay? Um, would you be willing this week to pray and give up one meal? And during that meal time, you would dedicate that to prayer 
and that you would dedicate that to ask God to do something about abortion, to move people, to move... uh, Back in January, I passed out to you a list of all of the Planned Parenthood centers in Virginia. There's 30 of them, I believe, or maybe 31, and I ask you to pray for each of those during the day. And if you have that list, get that list back out and pray specifically for people there. But but set aside a time where you forgo your meal and you pray. Maybe you would do that for a whole day, um, for every meal. And just at the normal time, whenever you would eat, you would get alone with the Lord. You would go to Psalm 139, you go somewhere in your Bible, you would open it up, and you would pray the Word back to the Lord, and you would ask Him to move, and that you would do that afresh. And if you want motivation to do that, then I wouldn't advise you to watch the video, because I think it will scar you. I will never, ever forget what I saw. I have a hard time remembering, uh, um, not having the words just uh, just causing me to, 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 to revolt. So at least read those if you want motivation. And then, with that brokenness, um, go... Uh, go to the Lord. The second thing I'm asking uh, you to do is if you're in Sunday school class this morning, I drafted a letter that I want you to consider signing uh, that we will send to our congressmen and senators uh, asking them um, to do everything in their power to remove abortion and defund Planned Parenthood with, with tax dollars. If you want to read that, you can read it at the Welcome Center. If you haven't signed that, please do that. We'll send that out this, this week. Uh, more to follow next Sunday. Now open your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Because we have a much better topic this morning. The Christian life is a perplexed life. The Christian life is a life that lives in this world with all of the, the gunk and the corruption and the victories of Satan and the, and the power of your flesh. And so, just like Paul, you're, you're, you're crushed and yet you're not completely overwhelmed. You're, you're depressed but not defeated. You, you, you realize that, that a lot of times life feels like swimming in concrete and yet you have the joy of the Lord in your, in your heart. And so, that's what we face uh, even this morning. We open with that topic and yet we have redemption. Picture of redemption set before us. We will participate in, in remembrance of the, of the cross. And 1 Corinthians 11 is going to help us as we prepare ourselves to, promote, uh, to, to, to take the Lord's table. What comes to your mind when you think of the Lord's Supper? I can remember the first uh, Lord's Supper that I took in a church uh, where I was the pastor, not here, and... Um, they ran out of communion bread. And so the 80-year-old lady who was responsible, dear woman, godly saint, she's with the Lord now, uh, the one who was responsible for filling up the trays, she just went and got a loaf of bread and rolled up bread balls in her hands and put them in the bread tray so whenever they passed around. Well, um, you know, for some people the issue was it's, un- it's not unleavened. Uh, for some people, it was the fact that she took every one of the bread balls and rolled it up in her hands and that you're going to pop that in your, uh, in your mouth. What comes to your mind whenever you think about the, uh, the Lord's Supper? Hopefully it's Jesus. Because the Lord's Supper is an act of worship. This is an act of, uh, of worship. Hopefully you also think about the unifying aspect of the, of the Lord's table. We're here, we have different backgrounds, uh, 
Some are male, some are female, some have more money than others, some have uh, high school education, some have college education, some have doctorates, some are from West Virginia, some are from Tennessee, some are from upstate New York, and yet when you come to the Lord's table, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Everyone is the same when we approach this table. It's unifying because we all come to Christ the same way. We're, we're sinners and we have nothing to offer God. So whatever you have, uh, it, it's, it, it's meaningless whenever it comes to the cross. Everything that Jesus is is what matters whenever it comes to the cross. And so we come to the cross and we're unified in our bankruptcy. We're all bankrupt before, before the Lord. It's also purifying. Because it's, a, it's, a, it's an opportunity to examine ourselves before we participate in this table. Even right now, God is, is shining the light of His Word in your heart and He's examining your heart. And before you go to the table, and before you remember Christ, before you look up, before you look back and remember what He's done, before you look ahead and remember that He's coming, He'll ask us to look inward. And He'll ask us to examine our own hearts. And He'll ask us to say... Brian, is there any unrepentant sin that's in your heart? Is there any malice that you're holding against other people? Is there any issue that you refuse to deal with? Is there anything that, you've, that you've, uh, you still feel a great sense of guilt because of and you've not placed under the blood? He'll ask me to look inward, and then we'll go to the table together. So it's an act of worship. It's unifying because we all come in our bankruptcy and in Christ's sufficiency, and it's also purifying. It's also faith-building. But when we take of the, the Lord's Supper this morning, the Lord's table is for believers. It's not for unbelievers. So if, if you have not been born again, if you not follow the Lord in baptism, whether you're a child or whether you're an adult, I would suggest to you the Lord's table is not for you. What I would suggest to you is get saved, come to Christ, then be baptized, and then you can participate in the Lord's, Lord's table. But it is an act of worship. Why is it an act of worship? Because it pictures the gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection, which is the lifeblood of the church. It's the lifeblood of a believer. What you feed on is the gospel of Christ, is your justification in Him. So it is, a, it is an, act of, it's an act of worship. And that's what's supposed to be going on, but that's not what's going on in 1 Corinthians. So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 11. And you're going to allow that to prepare us. So let's read 1 Corinthians 11. We'll begin in verse 17. The Apostle Paul says, Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, therefore the words of the Lord, Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse or for evil. For first of all, when you come together as a church... I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that, that those who are approved might be recognized among you. Sarcasm. Therefore, here's what's happening. When you come together in one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. And one is hungry and another is drunk. The two extremes that's happening. What? Do you not have houses to eat or drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I received from the Lord 
that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, Take, eat. This is My body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of Me. In the same manner, He also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He come. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself. For he's not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. And if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Let him eat. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. Lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order whenever I come. Now, we don't have time to go into it, but I would encourage you to read all of chapter 11. If you, haven't, you don't have a set devotion, use chapter 11 this week, because chapter 11 is all about the problems of worship. And there's, there, there's, two, there's two issues of public worship going on in 1 Corinthians 11. And the first part comes from verse 1 through verse 16, and that's the head covering part. Now, don't let that, don't let that scare you and go, what is this whole head covering stuff about? Because the first issue that Paul deals with is, is, the, is public worship dishonoring God through gender rebellion. Oh, gender rebellion. That touches a nerve, doesn't it? There's a lot of gender rebellion going on. Just watch the ESPYs, or don't watch the ESPYs. Just read about it, right? Lots of gender rebellion going on. That's exactly what's going on in Corinth. Women and men were blurring the lines of distinction between the sexes. They were attacking the image of God, and that was happening in Corinth 2,000 years ago. Gender rebellion. There's nothing new under the sun. There's no new sin that's happening. That's what's happening. There was a gender rebellion, a feminist movement going on, and, and the men were being effeminate, and that was affecting public worship, and God deals with it. That's the first part. second part is the issue of what's happening in the Lord's in the Lord's Supper. There was an issue of division and not discerning what the Lord's Supper stood for. And so I'd say we're only going to look at verses 17 through verse 30. And I would just call it the body of Christ at the Lord's table. Because when you come to the Lord's table, you come as an individual, but you come as the body of Christ. You don't take the Lord's table in your private devotions. It's not just to you. You don't get out your Bible and you don't go to pray and you don't pour your grape juice in your cracker and you participate in the Lord's table. I won't go as far as to say if you've done that that that's sinful. I'm just telling you that you can't find that instruction in the Scriptures. What the Scripture instructs is that the body of Christ comes together to the Lord's table. And we partake of the Lord's table together. So the body of Christ at the Lord's table and there are three parts, there are three things that Paul goes over in this second part. And the first is, there's an undeniable problem when the body of Christ approaches the Lord's table. Look at verse 17. 
Paul says, now in giving these instructions, what instructions? The instructions that he's getting ready to give about the Lord's table. I don't praise you. Why don't you praise them, Paul? Since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. Now, a number of your Bibles will say worse, but a number of your Bibles will say evil. Does anybody have a Bible that says evil? That's because that's what the word means. It means moral evil. You don't come together for the better, which is what we're supposed to do when we come to the Lord's table. You come together and it's evil. Moral evil is being committed. This is not just something that's small. This is a huge deal. And when the early church gathered for the Lord's Lord's Supper, it was typically done with two parts, as best we can tell. Now, we don't have Scripture that tells us this. We have church history. It tells us that on Sunday nights typically is when communion took place. And the only people that came on Sunday nights were the members, people that were baptized, the dedicated church members. Really, nothing's changed, right? Oops. Sunday nights, church members, dedicated, baptized. And when they did, they had a love feast. And the love feast was like a potluck dinner, what we might think about like a potluck, right? They all brought food, and they ate, and then the culmination of that evening was they took communion together, signifying. And Paul says, whenever you gather together, and you do this, and you have what's called a love feast, whenever you're eating together, and you partake of the Lord's table, it's not for the better, which it should be, it's actually evil. Now again, in those days, and we may return to those days at some point, When you came to Christ, your church family mattered more than your flesh and blood. Jesus even upholds that. It's not what He desires. He desires every person in a family to come to Christ. But He also says that if you have to choose between father, mother, brother, sister, even your wife, even your own life, you're to choose Me. If your family makes you choose between Christ or them, you choose Christ. And then you pray that they would come into the fold, so the circle would not be unbroken, as the song goes. And in these days, when you came to Christ, your church family mattered more, in some cases, than your earthly family. Because you lost your job. You sometimes lost your spouse. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, just a few verses later, that some people came to Christ and their husbands and wives abandoned them because they became Christians. They said, I didn't marry a Christian, I'm out of here. And so the church family mattered, and this love feast was the opportunity. And he says that you don't come together for better but for worse. So what is this evil Paul's talking about? Look at verse 18, because he will tell us specifically. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear, because Paul hasn't been there, I hear from a reliable source, there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. Now, here's some sarcasm. There has to be divisions among you. There has to be factions so the little kings amongst the factions can be recognized. He's saying, of course, I believe it because if there wasn't the little groups, then then whoever the king of that little group wouldn't be able to be exalted in their little group. So I can understand why there's little groups among you because there's people who think they're little kings. That's what Paul's saying. It's It's biting sarcasm. At least that's the way I take verse 19. The issue that he deals with here is division and selfish actions. Look at verse 20. Therefore, when you come together in one place, there's the unity, in one place, 
There are divisions among you when you gather. Those divisions are among you. When you come together in one place, there's the unity. It's not to eat the Lord's Supper. God doesn't even recognize it as the Lord's Supper. Rather than fellowship in the Lord's table, they were pairing up and dividing off and they were sinning against one another. And Paul says that God doesn't even recognize it as what you think that it is. Um, Now, I let that sink in whenever I read it because what it should say to you and should say to me is the Lord matches our motives and our actions, doesn't it? What does 1 John say? If we say we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. He's saying you're gathering together and you're saying you're celebrating the Lord's table and that you love Christ and that you love the body, but your motives aren't matching your actions. That's what you're doing. That's the act that you're performing. But when you're coming together, it's not for the better, it's for the evil, and God doesn't see that as worship because your actions and your motives don't match. He gets more specific in verse 21. For in eating, each one takes his own supper Ahead of others. And one is hungry and another is drunk. He gives the two extremes. It's like what he says when I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. In the, when, when, the, when the body gathers together, there are peop, some people in the body who actually leave hungry from the potluck dinner and others leave with their bellies full and are even intoxicated. I mean, there's two extremes happening when the one body comes together. Now, I tried to think of a way to help us understand this. Because, frankly, we don't do love feasts. We have Baptist potlucks, and we don't exclude anybody. I mean, you go through the line. Some of you go through the line three or four times, right? I've seen you. You know, the trick is you don't pick up a plate. If you don't pick up a plate, then nobody ever can see how much you actually put on it. Or you just put a little bit and you just keep going back refilling it over and over. I've got this Baptist potluck thing down. But I was really trying to think of a way to to picture what's happening. That is there actually divisions, and those divisions were the slaves and the free, the rich and the poor, and they're actually saying, when we come together... As a church, we're meeting at the church house, we're meeting together as the body, but you can't have any of our food. And there was exclusions going on and divisions. Maybe this will help. On February 1st, 1960, four African-American college students sat down at a lunch counter at Woolworths in Greensboro, North Carolina, and politely asked for service. Their request was refused because they were black. Blacks didn't eat where whites did, so they were refused service. When asked to leave, they remained in their seats, and their passive resistance helped ignite a youth-led movement that challenged racial inequality throughout the South. Many of you lived through the Woolworth counter. But it wasn't just lunch counters in 1960. There were black water fountains. There were white bathrooms, black bathrooms. There were black hotels. There were white hotels. Everything was divided, and people justified it all with the phrase, separate but equal. Do you remember that phrase? Separate but equal. I would say, I'm looking around here. Some of us are different 
nationalities and backgrounds. We have people from Nepal, from China. We have black, white. We have everything in between. But I would say if you were black during those days, separated wouldn't feel equal, would it? Now, a lot of us can't imagine that today because that's not the way that our country functions. It's different now. And it seems ridiculous to say separate but equal, but that's how disgusting, true, true racism is. Well, maybe you can take that feeling and apply it to the Lord's Supper. Because people who were coming together, all claiming salvation in Christ, all claiming that they were equal at the foot of the cross, they were separating based on social and economic status. To make it worse, they divided up and they wouldn't share their goods with other people. They were only inviting certain people to the table. Think of it this way. Think of coming... Timberlake Baptist Church is going to have a fellowship next Sunday night and everyone is to bring food and a dish. And when you went through the line, you saw in the line a sign on people's dishes that said, college students only, senior saints do not eat. Or senior saints only, young marrieds do not eat. And then all of those people would only eat out of their dishes and come in here in the ministry center and sit together in round tables, and you couldn't sit, if you were a senior saint, you couldn't sit with a college person, a college person couldn't sit with the senior saints people. And then, while we were eating and all of that, Pastor Stephen would stand up and we would sing, Blessed be the ties that bind. Wouldn't that be hypocrisy? That's exactly what's happening in Corinth. And that's exactly what can happen to us. We're not going to put on a piece of, of corningware, you know, pastors only, do not eat, or this Sunday school class only. But we do find it easy to divide up our likes and dislikes and age and worship styles and all kinds of other things. And while all of those things can matter, this is a moment when we're one, right? This moment is when we're one in Jesus Christ. Because at this place, we're all bankrupt sinners, no matter what our age is, no matter where we're from, no matter what teaching or training that we've, that we've had. Paul says that kind of dividing up is contemptible to God. And it shows more care for your personal desires than God's church. That's why he says here, look at verse 22. What? I mean, if you want to only invite a certain group of people over to your house for dinner, by all means do it. But do it in your house. Don't do it in the church. If you like to play soccer with people who like to play soccer, then go play soccer with them. But don't let that be a dividing point in the church of God. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Why? Do you, you're despising the church that's gathered together. So that's what he says. We're one body in Christ. Secondly, let me show you the unquestionable purpose of the Lord's Supper. If that wasn't enough, he identifies the problem, and then he goes to this unquestionable purpose. Look at verse 23. I emphasized this when I was reading. Watch how Paul emphasizes the unquestionable purpose of the Lord's Supper. 
I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night, which He betrayed, was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks... Now, I won't do that to you again over and over. But you get the emphasis, right? This is the Lord's table. This is the Lord's supper. And the Bible presents to us two ordinances. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And they're not options, they're commands for a believer. Baptism symbolizes your union with Christ. You stand. As you're standing in the water, you're giving public testimony that Jesus has saved you, has changed you, has regenerated you, your sins are forgiven, you're associating with Christ on the cross. And then when you go under the water, you're associating with His death and burial. And then when you come up out of the water, you're associating with His resurrection and new life. Your union with Christ is pictured at baptism. You're in Christ. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He was your substitute and your, your union with Christ. And that happens once because you're placed in union with Christ one time. The Lord's Supper symbolizes your communion with Christ. Salvation is once. Your union with Christ happens once. You're brought into Christ once, but your communion with Christ is on a regular basis. We're never separated from our union with Christ. That's what Romans 8 says. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? He goes on and says none of those things. Nothing will separate us. But the Lord's Supper symbolizes a believer's communion with Christ, and your communion with Christ can be affected. Have you felt closer to the Lord at times in your Christian life and farther at times from the Lord in your Christian life? Have you felt closer to other believers at times in the Christian life, farther from other believers at times in the Christian life? Well, when you feel that, God doesn't say the answer is to go be rebaptized. Because your union with Christ, nothing will ever separate you from the love of Christ. You're in Christ, and nothing can pluck you out of the Father's hand. We sang that this morning, right? But your communion with Christ and your communion with other believers can be affected. And so we're told to regularly gather at this table and to remember and examine and reflect and to consider and discern the body and look at ourselves, and look at those around us, and look it up, look up, look back at what Christ has done, look ahead at the fact that He's coming, and that we're all going to be together again one day around not this table, but what this table represents. Because Jesus said that He'll never eat or drink until He does it in the kingdom of God with you and with me, and that's the marriage supper of the Lamb. And in... Whenever we participate in that table, it's not going to be puny, sinful me leading it and the deacons passing things out. It's going to be Jesus. Won't that be a day? If you know Him, you're going to be there. And you're going to be there because of what He's done, and you're going to be there with all of the believers of, of Timberland. So it symbolizes our communion. Look at verse 24. He broke it and gave thanks. It's a commemoration. Take eat. This is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. Look at verse 26. It's a proclamation. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death 
till He comes. There's the reminder. It's the reminder of the second coming. You proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. He's coming. And it symbolizes the new covenant. Verse 25. In the same manner, He also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. How crazy then. How mind-blowing. Why the Apostle Paul can't praise them is to celebrate and proclaim the cross, which declares every one of his bankrupt sinners, to remember that we look for the coming of Christ and that we'll all be there together and then to do it divided up. And Paul says that dishonors the Lord and the very purpose of the gathering. So quickly, the last one is the unifying plea. Look at verse 27. There's the issue. The problem, there's the purpose. Now he gives this unifying plea. Therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself. And so then let him eat the bread and drink the cup. He says, therefore, I've revealed the issue. I've told you the proper purpose. Here's what you must do. This is serious. If you gather wrongly, you dishonor the Lord. Um, you probably saw this past week. Everybody's talking about the Iran deal. And then you'll see some places where they'll do footage of individuals in Iran burning the American flag and the Israeli flag while it's there. What are they doing? Is it the cloth that matters to them? Why are they doing that? Because it represents the United States. They hate the United States, and it represents Israel, and they hate, they hate Israel. If you... If you trample or you burn a country's flag, you don't dishonor the piece of cloth, you dishonor the country that it represents. Paul says it's the same as true of the Lord's Supper. If you come unworthily to the table, you don't just simply dishonor the ceremony, you dishonor the one in whom it is to honor. And you become guilty. Your sin is pointing back not in victory of the cross... Because when we come to the table, we point to the victory of the cross. My sins are paid for. They're covered here. And this is what this represents. If you come unworthily, you point back to the cross of why Jesus went there. It was, it was sin that took Him there. You see the difference. So what specifically does unworthily mean? Because people get a lot of trepidation here, and you should. He says people are dead because of this. That's church discipline for you, right? People are dead because of this. What does it mean to eat and drink unworthily? Because some people look at that and go, wow, I mean, I don't know. I mean, David said he doesn't even know if there's sin in his, in his own heart. So search me, Lord. And, and Paul says that he has to wait till the judgment to even see. So maybe there's sin in my heart. Maybe I don't know. Or maybe I don't have time before I take the table to reconcile with that brother or sister or deal with this big issue. So maybe I shouldn't do it because I don't want to die. Or I don't want to dishonor the Lord because that's my desire. Well, all of those, I think, are good motives. But that's not what... Paul is talking about here. He tells us specifically. Look at verse 29. He who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself. What is an unworthy manner? He's not discerning the Lord's body. Notice he doesn't say he's not discerning the Lord's blood. Because he talked about blood and body before. He says he's not discerning the Lord's body. And the issue is that they're dividing up amongst the body. They're, they're dis, there's disunity. 
they're focused here rather than here. That means not seeing we're one in Christ and our unity is because of Him and not our preferences or differences or social background or skin color or economics or whatever else it is. They're not discerning the Lord's body. So when you come... Coming in an unworthy manner is looking at me and Jesus and not discerning that you're part of a community of other believers that have come through Jesus. So if there's any moment in which you lay aside your differences and your preferences and all of those things and say, I am one body with the people of Timberlake who are saved, this is the time. And to come with anything other than that can be very, very dangerous. Look how dangerous it is in verse 30. For this many reason, many are weak and sick among you. And Paul even goes on to say that that happens because God loves us. Look at verse 32. When we're judged, I don't have time to go into the, what judge means here, verses but it doesn't mean everlastingly condemned. It says we're chastened by the Lord, in verse 32, that we not, might not be condemned with the world. The judgment that was happening, as serious as it was in the Corinth, was because they were God's people. And God treats His people different than He does the world. And one of the blessings that He brings to us is chastisement. You ever been in sin? Resisted the Lord? Repentance? It's a painful thing, isn't it? Praise God, it's a painful thing. And God doesn't leave you where you're at. So, look at verse 33. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Welcome one another. Be one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home lest you come together and be sifted and chastised by the Lord, and the rest I'll set to order whenever I come. So I'm going to invite the deacons up, and we're going to take the Lord's table together. And as they're coming, I would ask them to go ahead and get the, the bread, begin to prepare that, and I'm going to ask the rest of you to bow your heads.